back into Ecclesiastes tonight. We are over halfway through. We're in chapter 7, and we're going to cover the first 14 verses tonight. Uh, The theme for tonight is to live wisely. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, um, I I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't become a Christian until I was uh, roughly 22. Um, And when I was younger, the way that I viewed Christianity was that it was mostly just about heaven and hell. And, And that um, it, it was about eternal life. It was about the afterlife, but it wasn't really for the everyday life. I don't, I don't know about you, but I just did not see it as practical. I thought, why not just wait until you're on your deathbed and then um, have the priest or the pastor or someone come in, tell you about uh, this Bible thing, and, and surely you'll be good enough to go to heaven. And so I didn't see it um, I didn't see it as practical at all. And it wasn't until I first became a Christian and I remember stumbling upon um, a couple books in the Old Testament, one of them Proverbs and one of them Ecclesiastes. And they changed the way that I saw the Bible and Christianity because I realized this is incredibly practical. Like you, you can't read it and say, that doesn't relate to this generation. Like it, just, it just relates to every generation. As it's been said, the Bible is a timeless book, which always makes it a timely book. And so uh, you need to know that in the Old Testament particularly, but all of the Bible, it's not chronological in order. The books of the Bible are not chronological. The events um, you can piece together chronologically, but the books of the Bible are broken up into literary genres. And so even when you open your Bible and you see how they're grouped together, in the Old Testament you have uh, genres like the prophets, um, both the major or minor. You've got uh, historical books or narratives of history. You've got the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They're all clumped together. You've got the books of poetry, and you've got what we call wisdom literature. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, they all are clumped together in this wisdom literature. And I stumbled upon them, and I thought, man, this isn't so much about um, just the afterlife as much as it is the everyday life. And they became very practical to me. And so tonight we're going to be talking about wisdom. And the Bible really lumps two groups of people in there um, into terms of humanity. They, they, the Bible says um, you can be wise in life or you can be foolish in life. And if you look through the wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, you'll see over and over, the wise man does this, the foolish man does this. And so you got to decide, am I going to be the wise man or am I going to be the foolish man? Now some of us um, have made a habit out of blaming God for a lot of things in life um, that maybe we shouldn't blame him for. That if we look at our own decisions and some of the things that we've done, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, it just came down to a matter of, are we wise or foolish? And in times we're foolish. We make bad choices and we have to live with the consequences often of those bad choices. So tonight, we're going to just sit under um, Solomon's wisdom. And I don't know if you had an old grandpa that you like to sit under and just hear some wisdom from. I had an old grandpa that I like to just just spend time with, hours with. Um, Solomon's going to be that old grandpa for us tonight. He's looking back at life, and he's just throwing out a whole bunch of different topics and what wisdom looks like. And so, if you're a note-taker, tonight's one of those note-taking nights where you're going to just see me rifle through a whole bunch of um, different topics. I'm going to stop 11 times. We're going to see if we can do this tonight. Um, and, and then go back and ponder these, pray over them later. And look at uh, what God might be speaking to you about. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 
verse 1, the first half of it says, A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. The first thing we see, wise people persevere in doing right. They persevere in doing right. You see, it's been said that uh, your reputation is the aroma of your character. I've heard that said before. I'm not sure if you have. Your reputation is the aroma of your character. If you've got bad character, then your reputation stinks. If, if you've got good character, um, then it's pretty good. And now, perfume smells good, but a reputation does good. You see, perfume can be purchased at once and maybe last over time. A reputation is built over time, and it can go away like that. And just like um, financially, you can make a lifetime of good investments. With one bad investment, it can all go away. You can pour in day in and day out the years of a healthy marriage. One bad decision, one fall into temptation, your reputation's gone. It all goes away. It can, anyhow. And just like a wall is built one brick at a time, a reputation is built one day at a time. Let me ask you, how's your reputation? Do you persevere in doing right? Um, Silas, you know, he, um, his reputation is a roller coaster in our family. We spend most of our days, especially Tara, because she's with him a lot more than me, helping him to be obedient. And when he does things right, he'll often pull us aside and say, Daddy, um, am I being trustworthy? And something that like he obviously did well and he was being trustworthy in, he'll say, Daddy, am I being trustworthy? And I'll say, yes, you're being trustworthy. He'll say, oh, because he likes it, because he knows he's doing good. A matter of minutes later, he will do something completely opposite, foolish, like 30 minutes ago when I stopped at the house real quick. He climbed up seven feet up in the air down in our basement, climbed on top of the couch, and got into our basement window and grabbed a glue trap, a sticky trap for like spiders and stuff, and got it all over his hand. I said, you're not being trustworthy. He said, oh, I am being trustworthy. I said, no, you're not being trustworthy. You see, it's a roller coaster. It's all over the place with him. His reputation is good sometimes, and it's horrible other times. Is that your reputation? Do some people in your life know you as being um, a godly person, a godly friend, and then other people in your life would not characterize you as a godly person? How's your reputation? You see, they're incredibly hard to build, and you have to persevere in doing good and doing right based on what you know about the circumstances to do the right thing over and over and over. Even a three-year-old can do good for a while. But he has trouble persevering and doing what's right. What about you? How's your reputation? Wise people persevere for the long haul and doing the right thing, knowing, hey, we all make mistakes, but you got to keep trucking. Verse 1b, the second part of it says, And the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. This is my kind of guy. How many of y'all have been wanting some fun on a Friday night? You're like, yeah, let's just skip the parties. Let's hit the funerals. What funerals do we got going in town? Let's call up the churches. Okay, that was a joke. Uh, you guys can laugh. Okay. Anyway, after all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. 
Second thing, we see wise people live every day in light of one day. They live every day in light of one day when they're going to see God face to face. We celebrate as a culture um, first days really well, don't we? We celebrate birthdays. How many of you all like to celebrate your birthday? Some of you have like a birthday week or a birthday month, right? We're celebrating the day you were born. We love to celebrate anniversaries, right? Um, We love to celebrate uh, weddings. How much time and effort goes into a wedding, the first day of marriage? And yet what most people want to know is not how are you going to celebrate the first day, but are you going to make it to the last, (laughs) Are you going to persevere to that? You see, wise people recognize that one day, not the first day, but one day, uh, when we see Jesus face to face, um, that's all that's going to matter. And so we dictate and base everything we do today on how we can best get to that place. We live that way. Life is short. Um, You ever heard the phrase, live life backwards? Live life backwards. It applies, I think, to this uh, couple of verses. That's why we have GPS. GPS is beautiful, isn't it? Because what you do is you uh, know ahead of a long journey that all you got to do is, is type in the destination, and it gives you the best path, the right path, usually. Some of you maybe have experiences otherwise, but usually it puts in the right path. I remember um, what happens when, when you don't know your destination. Back in 2004, um, actually, I think it might have been the first day or two of 2005, K-State football, they went down to uh, Arizona to play in the Fiesta Bowl versus Ohio State, and they had just won the Big 12 championship. And me and uh, my high school buddy, uh, we played football together. We got our old football coach to drive down there with us and to watch this game. And it was, of course, January. Um, it was cold outside. But we went all the way down to Arizona, watched the game, lost, regretted it, all that good stuff, typical bowl trip. And we um, – we, we started driving back, and it was an 18-hour drive to northeast Kansas to where our hometown was. And I remember it was like 2, 3 in the morning, and we're just entering into southeast Colorado. We're tired. We've had a long uh, trip, and we just want to get home. We're supposed to get home at like, I don't know, 6, 7, 8 in the morning. And we, um, two of us uh, were talking to the driver and said, listen, um, I think we're supposed to go to either Lyman or Lamar, one of those L towns in southeast um, Colorado, just just get us there, and we'll shoot off over onto I-70, and it'll be good. We didn't tell him exactly where. We just told him one of those two towns. Woke up four hours later in a snowstorm as he went to Lyman instead of Lamar, and Lyman is closer to Denver than it is Kansas, and we backtracked hours, and when we woke up, it was dark, and we were in a blizzard going 30 miles an hour on the interstate. It took us eight hours driving through western Kansas to get through that. Is that you? Are you a little bit unsure about your destination and exactly where you want to go? Not just heaven, but what a godly life looks like. What you want to look back when you become an old grandma or an old grandpa, and you're telling your kids about a life maybe well-lived, and you see the portrait of wise people in your life right now, but you, you, you want that, but you don't know how to get that. And so you're just kind of guessing right now, and you're just trying to go with the flow and do the best that you can. You see, Solomon, in giving us these words, he's trying to give us the right path. When you type in heaven as the destination, we know Christ is the only path, um, but to live wisely. 
are pillars and building blocks and stones. And the picture of a life well lived on those stones as you build a life on that foundation of wisdom, it includes living every day in light of the one day that you're going to see him face to face. For Christians, the last day isn't the worst day. It's always the best day uh, because it's the launch party into heaven and it's going to be beautiful. What do you want your life to look like when you get to that day? Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Third thing we see, wise people embrace dealing with pain. They embrace it. You see, hurt, pain, grief, sorrow, when they're dealt with in a healthy way, um, they can actually be a blessing because they refine your perspective and they realize that life is framed by death and we want to paint an accurate portrait of what God's will is for our lives. We, we want to live that out. And we recognize it's good to ponder the big things in life. It's good to think about it sometimes. Solomon's saying it's really good to think about it. It's interesting. Our culture doesn't deal very well with uh, lamenting or mourning. You look at Eastern culture, and even in Solomon's day, certainly in Jesus' day, it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be professional mourners within the Jewish community, that if uh, someone died, there would be people from the church, just like now, if you've got someone in a little country church that uh, has um, uh, hospital um, stays or something, all the ladies get together and make them food and take care of them and whatnot. In Jesus' day, they would have had people who, when someone passed away, they would have mourners come out and grieve with them, and they grieved publicly. They they would uh, dress a certain way and they would come and they would pray publicly a certain way. And they did this together. They grieved in community. And the blessing of that is that they had people their whole lives showing them what healthy grief looked like. In the Western culture, we don't do that, do we? We grieve in isolation. We want to celebrate our victories together on social media, but we sit in pain by ourselves. And so we have generations of people in our culture that don't know how to grieve because no one's walked with us through grieving. And so we push things back. We deny them that they ever happened. We put on a smile. We fake it. And we look at our perfect social media profiles. And when we post something on social media, we do it through the lens of, is this going to make me look good and my life victorious? Like, some, is someone going to want my life because of this? But if it shows pain or grief, we usually say, nah, don't put that on there. You don't want to be a weirdo. So some of us go our whole lives without dealing with the loss of our mom, our dad, family, friends, tragedy, heartache. You've got to understand it hadn't always been that way. You see, wise people realize pain hurts, and you've got to actually deal with it. You know, the whole Bible um, talks about pain. There's a whole book called Lamentations. Mourning, literally, to grieve or to mourn. Uh, You look at the genres of uh, the Psalms. Out of 150 Psalms, the majority of them, most of them, if they fit in one genre, it's the genre of lamentations, grieving. You read the Psalms, the reason we relate to it is because they're just crying out after pain and heartache. You see, Jesus, in his ministry, it says that he, he lamented over Jerusalem. 
that he wept over Lazarus. He did that publicly. Do you handle grief very well? Do you handle it at all? He says, the fools, <laughs> they only think about having a good time. The fools, they, they realize, hey, there might be hard stuff in life, but I don't want to address it. Let's just have a good time. Let's just pretend like things ain't so bad. Let's just deny it. Let's just fake it. Let's just put that smile on our face. Let's fill ourselves with some alcohol. Let's trade, um, let's trade our sorrows uh, for some depression, and maybe we'll start becoming dependent on pills or, or parties, or we can trade our sorrow for anger, and what we'll become dependent on is a busy schedule, and we'll just invest in our work, and we'll put our nose to the grind, and we're just going to get busy so we don't have to deal with pain, or if we're depressed, we'll take pills so we don't have to deal with pain. Both of them are the easy way out. That's what the fools do. Here's three things I'll tell you when it comes to dealing with sorrow, when it comes to dealing with grief, I think we need to keep in mind. Number one, you've got to create space in your life for introspection. We are so busy in our culture. Some of us don't know what it's like to be in solitude. We don't want to be alone with our thoughts. But in order for God to heal you, you have to let the deep stuff bubble up. You've got to let it come to the surface. Number two, you've got to be authentic in community. You can't come and say, well, grow groups, they're just not that deep. People are so shallow. No, if you're in the group, you got to open up. You got to be willing to talk about the hard stuff. You got to set the pace. When I've been a part of community, biblical community, where I see healing take place, it's because someone had the boldness and courage to say, you know what? I got issues. I got junk. Let's talk about it. I know we just had our pie and we got this cute little Bible study, but like, I got stuff to talk about. Can, can we address it? More times than not, you'll see the community come around them and, and help them. Number three, you got to let that pain actually collide with Jesus. He's the healer. You don't just need people to talk to in life. You need a God who heals things. And that means you got to let that pain bubble up. And instead of ignoring it, you got to let it collide with Jesus. So you take gospel truth and you say, what's the truth about this pain, this hurt, everything I'm feeling? What, is it, what does Jesus say and do? And, and what does the cross how does it change this pain? Now, this is a deep topic. This is a long topic. There's a lot we could talk about. But I think those are three keys. Wise people deal with pain. Verse 5. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Fourth thing wise people do is they know who to listen to. They know who to listen to. You ever had a tough decision in life and you just couldn't decide what to do, so you asked a bunch of different people, family, friends, mamas, dads, everyone, and then you found yourself more confused at the end than when you began because you had too many opinions and you didn't know, which path do I go? Who do I follow? Whose opinions matter? You see, Solomon's saying not every opinion is created equally. We all got opinions, right? But not all of them hold weight. Not all of them hold value. You've got to know who to listen to in life. It's been said um, that you've got to live with one ear open and one ear closed. 
Maybe that's why God gave us two ears. You've got to live with one ear open to the wise people who might rebuke you and correct you, but it's a blessing, and one ear closed to the foolish who will tell you what um, you want to hear, and they might praise you, but their reputation holds no weight. Who are you listening to? See, the wise people in your life, they're going to be the people who love Jesus, who follow Jesus. Some of us define wise people based on who's closest to us. Well, I'm going to take those who, who, who um, are in my family first and then my friends and then people outside and we work our way that way. Wise people, they don't care about family lines or friendship lines. It might be an acquaintance. You might not have anyone close to you that loves the Lord. Find people who love the Lord and who know his word, and who care about you, and they care about your soul. Generally, you can trust those people more. But then how do you know about the fools? There's two quick things we can glean here. He says in verse 6, a fool's laughter is quickly gone. You see, fools generally are shallow. Um, They're jokers. They make a light of things. They might be fun in the good times. You've got friends like that who are they're fun in the good times, but they're kind of annoying in the hard times because they don't generally stick with you. Um, you'll talk to them about um, things that friends talk about all day long, but when you really need them to give you advice, they ain't got anything. Or what they do have just mm, doesn't sound quite right. Number two says that Their laughter is quickly gone. It's like thorns crackling in a fire. So number two, not only are they shallow, but fools, uh, their advice fades away quickly. It just doesn't last. So it's shallow and it fades away. Um, Who are the friends that um, will not only pour into your life and speak truth into your life, um, but they'll stand with you when things get hard? Some people will give a lot of advice up front. They'll be loud. They'll start hot. um, But they just don't hang around for the long term. What kind of friend are you? Are you the kind that you've got opinions for everyone in the room, but you're not really willing to walk through life with them? Um, that, That you don't really necessarily care about them? I learned this early in ministry. There's a big difference between a preacher and a pastor. You can be a preacher and be a jerk. You can't be a pastor and be a jerk. You've got to love people. You've got to care about their souls. You've got to be willing to have not only the wisdom and knowledge to speak into them, but uh, the love to care for them. What kind of a friend are you? See, the wise people, they hang out with other wise people. Verse 7. Extortion turns wise people into fools and bribes corrupt the heart. Next thing we see, fifth thing that wise people do, they know that they know that shortcuts are usually dead ends. Again, you can imagine old Grandpa Solomon, the end of life. He's been through the long road. And he knows in general to some trouble. This path is usually the best path. Path of least resistance usually gets you in to some trouble somewhere down the line. Doesn't matter whether it's financially or relationally, shortcuts are usually dead ends. 
usually dead ends. You look at what is extortion. Extortion is blackmail. It's when uh, you use force um, or threats to get what you want. Bribes? Well, what's a bribe? A bribe ultimately is when uh, you give in or you compromise for something. Both of these are the easy way out. On opposite ends of the spectrum, they're both the easy way out. Um, It's when you don't know um, or you're not willing to put in the hard work in a relationship and and to communicate with someone and to um, do the hard stuff that you use one of these two ways. Let's just throw out a few options here. If you're dating or even in marriage, if you threaten to leave or you shut down emotionally, um, if you throw threats out there, if you're going to do that, well, then I'm going to just out of here. Or if you ever went down that line, I'm gone. Or if you um, just get angry with them and try to overpower them in conversation instead of just talking gently. That's relational extortion. Um, or on the other end of that, if you're dating and you find um, that you're compromising, well, they're cute. I'm cute. I think I'm cute. We should do things that maybe we shouldn't do. Two days ago, it sounded like a horrible idea. Now, eh, you know what? What if we get married? It'll be good. Well, if you don't get married, you'll regret it. If you do get married, you'll definitely regret it. You'll regret it no matter what. Do you compromise when you're dating? Extortions, bribes. What about, um, what about parents? Kids are hard to make obedient. Man. When, when you see that your child's disobedient, do you just, on one hand, get really angry with them and say, you know what, I'm the mom, I'm the dad, just do what I say. Uh, that's parenting extortion. You use your threats and your force to get what you want because you don't want to put the hard work in of communicating and being gentle and persevering in it. Or do you just give in to a bribe? You know what, if you just eat your food, I'll, just, I'll give you what you want. Just eat your food, please. You compromise. What about employees? Do you struggle with this? Do you um, exaggerate a little bit on your time card, how many hours you work? Do you take supplies home from work that maybe you shouldn't? Well, I've been working there long enough. They don't pay me enough, so I'll just do this. Do you manipulate your boss? This. What's the result of this? Solomon says, they corrupt the heart. You see, taking shortcuts poisons the soul and it gets easier each time. Some of us live a life of shortcuts. Jesus said, you've got to take the narrow way, the wide way. That's the way that most people go, and it leads to death. Um, but the narrow way leads to life. It's the harder way. When you follow Jesus, you know because this world is broken and you come from a sinful flesh— that following him and being empowered by his it's going to be the harder way, but it's the way that leads to life. Verse 8. Finishing is better than starting. And patience is better than pride. Number 6. Wise people finish well. They finish well. Do you like starting new projects? I told you, I'm a project guy. I like to start new projects. In my world, um, my friends, my family, um, my parents, you got grandmas and grandpas. I I know what it's like to start a project around the house and to count the cost and to uh, persevere and to to do projects. And um, 
when I walk in now to anyone else's house, I, I look and I can tell, and they might even tell me, well, I, I did this project or I started this project years ago, but you can see signs all around as to how well they do projects. You, you got any friends who got trim missing? You know, you know the missing trim friends? The ones who, um, when you walk in, they can tell you about the project they started in their house 15 years ago, five years ago but they still got their trim missing. They said, you know what? We put up those walls and we did this whole thing. We, we ripped up all the flooring back there about two years ago and oh, it's just so good. We're so glad to have that all done. And you're looking, you're saying, you ain't got your trim on. <laughs> and that's the usually least expensive part, but that, that's the last part. And they might say, well, I just, I haven't got around to it. Or, um, I, you know what? I just, I don't like that finishing work. If you're a tough guy, that's what you say. I don't like that finishing work as if it's like dainty. No, it's still <laughs> carpentry. You're just not wanting to finish well. For whatever reason, are you a missing trim guy? You see, it's easy. We all like to start new things. We start uh, new relationships. We start new projects. We start new jobs. We start new adventures. And wise people know that you're going to hit obstacles. It's going to be hard. You see, in order to start something, all you got to do is have a little initiative and some pride. I could do this. Let's start fast and loud. Come on. Why wait till tomorrow? It's 11 p.m. Let's get this started. We can rip the sheet rock off that thing. We can do this. You But to finish well, you've got to have patience. And you know there's going to be obstacles. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. All through the Bible, we hear perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. I never understood the whole issue with Hebrews 6, the loss of salvation passage, you know, Hebrews 6, 4, and talking about um, can you lose your salvation, can you not lose your salvation. I didn't know why that's so popular with Christians. Like, are you planning on bailing? <laughs> what's the, like, really, at the end of the day, what's the problem? If you want to follow Jesus, you ain't going to lose your salvation. Not that you could if you wanted to anyhow. But I, understand, I was like, man, that's a generation of people who don't know how to finish well. They're, they're, their argument is, I want to know, can I lose this thing just in case I kind of back away at some point? Like, what is going on? Why is that even a big deal? Everybody gets pumped. First day of football practice, everyone's excited. First day of boot camp, let's do this. Second trimester. I think I can be the best mom in the world. But will you be there in the end? This is why um <laughs> this is why the gym is packed in January and empty in July. Is God telling you that even though you want to bail on something, he's saying finish well. See, you can leave something and still finish well. Finish well. Um, Ahab, he wasn't a very good king, but in First uh, Kings chapter twenty, verse eleven, he's talking smack to another king, the king of Syria, and he's about to go to war with him. And Syria is being kind of pompous, and Ahab says, in verse eleven, a warrior dressing for battle should not boast like one who has won the battle. Talk is cheap. Are you all talk? I'm going to change the world. I'm going I'm to do this, and I'm going to start that, and I'm going to make an impact, and I'm going to get plugged in with this ministry, and I'm going to... Are you doing it? 
in a church, we got a lot of people who fill out connect cards because they're prompted. They want to know more about grow groups. They want to know about membership. They want to know about serving. Every Monday or Tuesday, I'll call the people who mark those cards. 80% never hear back from. At least 80%. I never hear back from. And the moment they were prompted, by the time they got home after lunch, they didn't want to serve anymore. It didn't last long. It didn't last long. Verse 9. You guys doing okay? You need a water break or something? We're moving quickly through this. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, but we're rifling through. Verse 9, control your temper. Control your temper. For anger labels you a fool. Seventh thing that wise people do is they don't let emotions define them. They don't let emotions define them. Control is the key word. You see, it's not a sin to be angry, but it's sinful to not control it. Um, I remember I had a great aunt who lived way out in the boondocks up in northeast Kansas and beautiful property down in this little valley, trees, farmland galore, uh, worth a lot of money. I mean, it was, a, it was a property that was worth a lot. And my uncle built that, had it his whole life. Well, he passed away and it was just my aunt out there all by herself. We're talking five plus miles to the nearest neighbor, um, 50 miles from civilization kind of, um, kind of farm. Well, she got scared out there. She thought, man, people might come and try to take advantage of me. Like, if something happens to me, I mean, I got nothing to protect me. So she went to Topeka and, um, and bought a German Shepherd, a trained guard dog. Now, I don't know if you're a dog person or not, but if you're not a dog person and you don't handle intimidation well, German Shepherds will scare you to death. Um, and I remember we, on several occasions, would come to visit her, and she had this big sign. We'd drive down her driveway, and, and this big sign that said, do not, in cap, big capitalage, get out of your car. Honk, and I will come to you. That dog was the meanest dog I think I've ever seen. If you got out of your car, it would come sprint and just... Rawr, 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 and it put fear into you. And I remember hating going to visit her because I hated this dog. But when she came out and she got her dog, that dog went from a mean, mean, mean dog to just bowing down to everything she did. And we'd go and we'd sit in her living room and we'd talk and the dog would be right there just staring. And I'd be like, oh my God, I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. This dog scares me. But when it was around her, it was completely controlled. You see, if you don't have any anger at all in life, then you're probably not going to love justice or stick up for the innocent very often. See, Jesus got angry. There's things worth getting angry about in life. If you have anger all the time, nobody's ever going to want to be around you. And so anger's not the issue. It's can you control your anger? How many of us have made some bad, bad decisions because of jealousy, because of anger, because of frustrations? And if we look back at life, we feel like it's defining us, the bad choices we made out of our emotions. Jesus will never want anything in your life to be Lord over you except for him. And some of us, we struggle with our emotions being Lord over us. And we've got to remind ourselves and take a deep breath. I'm in control of my emotions. They're in me. And sometimes they're intense but they don't control me. I control them. Don't let 
your emotions define you. Verse 10. And don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. I love, I love this. If you're ever going to be in um, church ministry in, in some old traditional churches that have a hard time changing, you might just, just put this as the big verse on the wall for them. Don't long for the good old days. It's not wise. The eighth thing we see, wise people don't live in the past. Wise people don't live in the past. They're thankful for the good things in the past. They deal with the hard things from the past, but they move forward. They don't live in the past. You ever find yourself saying as technology grows, as things change, well, I just wish we were back in those days. Or I just wish, oh, there were the times when we didn't have to deal with this. Or I just wish, you do that enough times, you'll start to live in a place that you can't go back to. It doesn't exist anymore. It'll stop you from living for today. I um, If I brought Silas any week, any week, I'm confident in this. If I just brought him here on a Wednesday night and you just saw his face and analyzed his little noggin for a bit, you would see lumps and bruises and cuts in various places. Every week, doesn't matter what week it is, you would see it. Because what he thinks is fun to do, and I don't know why he hadn't learned his lesson yet, is when he's in the house, anywhere really, he likes to stick his arms out like an airplane, and he gets the motor going in his mouth. He goes, and he likes to fly and run and go like this. And he does this number, and I don't understand why he does. He turns his head, and he looks back. It's not even out of, like, inexperience. It's purposeful. He just wants to feel what it feels like to not be looking at where you're going. And he thump, 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 thump his little noggin all the time. And we say, dude, you got to look. Si, I love you, buddy, but you got to look where you're going. You got to do a better job. I was in an airplane. You got to look where you're going. You see, what's true physically is true spiritually. You can't move forward while you're looking back unless you want to crash. And God's got a life for you of healing and transformation, and you can't walk into it if you're constantly focused on things in the past. Lot, his wife taught us, and Sodom and Gomorrah, she is leaving a godless culture. God's saying, I'm destroying it. Come on out. And yet she turns back just to take a look. I kind of miss it, don't I? She turns to salt. No better example than Israel. 400 years of slavery. 10 plagues. They get out just a few years, a few months into the desert. We're thirsty. We're hungry. It'd be better if we never even came out here. Just put us back in Egypt. Moses is like, you're crazy. How quickly have you forgotten You say for 400 years you want to move forward out of slavery, but you can't stop looking back. See, that's what we do. Some of us come from some junk, but we idealize and romanticize the past, don't we? We think the good old days are better than they really were. Because you don't feel the pain that you felt then, and you exaggerate the joy that you might have felt then. 
And some of us were keeping things real handy in the rearview mirror of life. And we catch ourselves staring at them. And we think that it's comfort, but it's not comfort, it's bondage. It's not comforting, it's bondage. It's stopping us from moving forward. For some of us, we've got to understand we need to, again, deal with the past in a healthy way. We don't ignore it, but we confront our past, both the good and the bad, with the gospel. The gospel says, I can heal the bad, and the gospel says, you don't need to romanticize the good. I've got better for you. Got to move forward. Verse 11. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Number nine, wise people know that wisdom and wealth are great shipmates. (laughs) They're great shipmates. You see, life is a journey. It's stormy. It's hard. You want to have a good crew on the boat with you. I think um, it's important to know that wealth, it's uh, something that can be used to get you where you want to go. And wisdom helps to steer you away from the bad stuff along the way. I think wealth has a bad rap. If you've been with us all throughout Ecclesiastes, we've talked what seems like against wealth. We've talked what seems like against Everything from careers to even personal relationships, all in the name of find something better in Jesus. We've got to understand, those things aren't evil. They're not evil in and of themselves, but we can be evil people who then, with bad motivations, make those things bad. But money can be a good thing. Some of us, we have wealth and it opens doors. It gives us opportunities we wouldn't otherwise have. Maybe uh, one of our spouses gets to stay home from work because we make enough money. Maybe they get to raise the kids at home if they choose to because we make enough money. Maybe they could go and um, have uh, medical needs met because they have money to do that. Maybe they can bless people and provide food for people and use that money to glorify God. Wealth can be a really good thing. But if you got to choose, Solomon's saying, choose wisdom. Because it can save your life. Money might help you get to where you want to go, but wisdom's going to make sure that you get where you want to go. Wisdom can save your life. But ultimately what he's saying here is, um, you know what? Sometimes in life you get steak and lobster. And you don't have to choose. Sometimes, if you get both, be thankful for both. How many of y'all want to end this right now and get steak and lobster? I just, you see, preaching 101, you can't mention food at any point in any part of the sermon because you'll lose them. Well, good news is we're two verses away from ending this. Ecclesiastes seven thirteen. Accept the way God, God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Some of the translations say, accept the way God does things and then fall into line. (laughs) I like that. It's very uplifting. Number 10, wise people accept the good with the bad. They accept the good with the bad. You ever, um, gosh, that's hard. Accept the way God does things. You ever just look at the Bible or you look at 
just everything that's happening in the world and you, you know truths about God and you see how he interacts with people and you see what he's done all through the Old Testament and, and you ever just think, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it that way. People ask you hard stuff. Why'd God let women and children get killed? Or why did this? Or why did that? And you're like, you can come up with an explanation, but you're still like, yeah, God, (laughs) we could have just avoided all that. Why why did you do some of the things you did? Well, his way is always best, and um, they're higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we always have to remind ourselves of that. Wise people know that. You see, years ago, um, when I watched way too much of the Discovery Channel because I was single. And I was watching like those wilderness shows, Man vs. Wild and all that stuff. I don't even know if they're still on. Um, thank God I don't even know if they're still on. That shows a lot about um, how good marriage is for you. But I I remember I, I was like, I, I want some adventure in life. And so I decided to go down to Arkansas and go hiking. And I, I found this place, White Rock Mountain, like national something or another. I thought, I'm just going to go on this hike. Now, I had explored when I was a kid. We lived next to the country. And so walking and whatnot and kind of hiking was good. But I never like went on like official hiking trails. We didn't go on vacation and stuff growing up. So I was brand new to the hiking world. And I just saw this hike and it said seven and a half miles. And it said, you go up this mountain and then you just come back down this mountain. When I showed up, not knowing much about hiking, I thought to myself, when I saw it kind of meander, I thought, that's the, that's where we're going, the top of that mountain. Why not just go straight up the mountain? To me, like, Point A to point B, let's just go the quickest, straightest way. It wouldn't be seven and a half miles if we just went straight up this mountain. Well, I got introduced to hiking real quick as it's like 100 degrees out, crazy humidity, and I'm sweating like a dog. And I'm walking through on this hiking trail, and I realize that uh, there's a thing called switchbacks. And with switchbacks, you go a little ways and then you cut back and then you go a little ways and you cut back and you can literally have traveled a quarter mile and look down or up and say that's where I just came from and and that's where I'm going and like why wouldn't it go straight up but it's a gradual incline and switchbacks are actually blessings but it feels like you're backtracking it feels like you're backtracking there were times in the hike where I realized and I didn't understand this if we're trying to go up the mountain why in the world are we going down we're losing elevation at points just to go back up and I'm thinking this is wasted energy why would we do that and I remember other parts of the the terrain the trail it was rocky crazy rocky and then other times there was brush all over the place and you could hardly make out where the trail was I got to the top of it and I didn't realize probably for months, years later, when I got a lot more hiking experience, that was actually the best way up the mountain. Someone a lot smarter than me made that trail. Not only was it scenic, but it was the best way up the mountain. You see, sometimes you look at your life and you think, there's a lot of switchbacks, there's a lot of backtracking, there's a lot of times where I don't understand where the trail's going. And you can say, God, why did you do it this way? Some of us have made um, some choices in life and we think to ourselves, I wish I didn't have to go through this. And you can curse the switchbacks or you can just thank God there's a trail. You can curse the switchbacks or you can just thank God there's a trail. Because it doesn't always make sense the path that God has led you in life. But it's his path. 
and therefore it's a good path. And so you don't need to know why, you just need to keep following the path. This world's broken. And in life, you're going to say, God blessed me. It's easy to accept the good. It's a lot harder to accept the bad. God, why? I've been trying to follow you. I've been trying to do good. I've been trying to to obey you, and yet you've let bad things happen to me. As if we know what's best for us. Isn't it funny how humanity always thinks the easiest way, the most comfortable way, the safest way is always the best way? And anything that happens to us that's not safe, comfortable, or easy is always, God, why did you do that to me? Sometimes hard is beautiful. Sometimes there's more to life than just arriving at death safely. Sometimes there's more to life than just arriving at death's doorstep safely and comfortably. This um, isn't necessarily something I was planning on saying, but I'll I'll do it as maybe it might help someone. Um, The great reformers 500 years ago, they they had this uh, understanding of God's will that anything that happens in your life, um, we understand God as having two hands, that everything passes through his hands and that God has a, an active will and a passive will. That there's things in the Bible that you see God actively did. He says, go, I send you there, I heal you, I do this. That God actively said, that's my will, go carry it out. But then there's other things um, in God's will that seem passive. Um, there's uh, innocent kids that die um, in life. There's uh, people who who seem to be following him and loving him, and yet they die tragically or they have health issues or they go bankrupt. Bad things happen to them. Job, right? Um, Those stories. And it's not that God um, actively said, I want this bad thing to happen to you, but he passively let man in their sin live out a sinful existence and brokenness abounds and things happen to each one of us that God didn't say, I want that to happen as much as he said, I'm going to let that happen. I'm going to let that happen. Both can be used for his glory. But the key is to understand everything, whether it's actively or passively, goes through the hands of God. And you have to accept the good with the bad. Last but not least, enjoy prosperity while you can. But when hard times strike, Realize that both come from God. Remember, nothing is certain in this life. Number 11, wise people cling to Jesus. They cling to Jesus. I mentioned Job. He was a wise man. He loved the Lord. He was a righteous man. He was an elder in the community. He had lots of money, lots of family, lots of kids, lots of everything that's good in life. And then he lost it all. It all fell apart. His kids died. He lost his wealth. Everything turned on him. His health was gone. He sat in sores. And I'm going to read to you. Um, His wife (laughs) wasn't being very encouraging in this moment. This is Job chapter 2. So this book took a turn for the worst real quick. Job not knowing why these bad things were happening to him because he was a righteous man. 
hears from his wife in verse 9 of chapter 2. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So if your spouse gives you that advice, don't, don't do it. He's just saying, Everything's falling apart. Just curse God one last time. Say, why did you do this to me? And maybe he'll kill you and end it. You ever felt like that? And this is Job's response. Not knowing why all this bad stuff is happening to him. Nothing in his life indicated he deserved this. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Even Job understands sometimes it doesn't make sense what God does. We freely accept the good things and the blessings he does for us. And we have to understand from his same hand, we get what feel like bad things. But for Christians, God redefines the way we see all things because everything that comes from God is ultimately can glorify God and is good for us. So things that this world deems as evil or bad, um, even though they might be painful, when they happen to us, they can be used for his glory and our good. And it changes the way we understand all of life. Wise people understand there's going to be tragedy in your life. I know this is a downer, but when I sit down with couples for premarital counseling, I tell them, I say, let's just hypothetically talk about the ups and downs. You're this age, right? Okay, yeah, this age. If you just had the people in your life die of old age, if everyone, no cancer, no bad stuff, everyone in your life die of old age and you guys stay to be married to the end, that means you're going to experience the death of your mothers and your fathers together, many of your brothers, maybe most of your friends. If everybody just died of old age, nothing else, you know how much tragedy you're going to experience, how much death you're going to have to walk through. Now, we live in a broken world, and cancer happens, and tragedy happens, and car wrecks happen, and a lot of other bad stuff happen. So let's not be surprised when the bad stuff happens. It's not God condemning us and judging us and saying, I hate you. Rather, it's a sinful, broken world calling out to a God saying, we're not whole without you. We don't know how to live without you. And one day he's going to redeem it, and he's going to change it, and we won't have to receive the bad with the good. We'll just have the good. But until then... We'll praise him no matter what. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days, but they all end. And he says, remember that nothing is certain in this life. What are you clinging to right now? Even as someone who loves his wife and I love my son, you hear me talk about both all the time. I still have to think to myself, what if God took one of them? What if God took both of them? What if he took my title and Um, my house and any little bit of money I have and all of my friends and my reputation and what if I didn't have a family anymore? What if all I had was God? Is Jesus enough? Ultimately, that's what Solomon's saying tonight. Wise people ponder this and they cling to the one thing that is certain and that's the gospel, that God's not going to leave you or forsake you, that he's in you, that he loves you, that he saves you, he wants to forgive you, He wants you to walk with him. He wants to give you new life. Everything else, every day, it's a crapshoot. You start the day with blessings. You don't know which ones are going to last till evening. But you always know that God never changes. Wise people know that. And they cling to Jesus. Let's pray.